0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Thursday, September the 11th, 2014. And we're moving on with installment three from our coverage of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam between August 11th and 16th of this year. Now, the theme for this installment is going to be primate conservation, which is always an important issue that comes up during um, primatological meetings. But having had the Congress this year in Vietnam brought that really close to everyone's attention because Vietnam is a country that does have a lot of biodiversity of primates and endemic biodiversity of primates. But unfortunately, many of those species are critically endangered or close to being critically endangered. Um, And so the future of those species and populations is... Is often quite in doubt and so preserving primate biodiversity was an important theme for this year's Congress. So in this installment of the podcast we're going to hear from primatologists and conservationists including Tatiana Hummel, Miles Woodruff, Debbie Cox, Noel Rowe, and Augustine Basabose talking about their roles and interests in the field of primate conservation. So in the first interview of this conservation installment we're joined by Dr. Tatiana Hummel. Now, Dr. Hummel is lecturer at the Durrell Institute of Ecology and Conservation at the University of Kent. And it's notable that the graduate program that she's involved in, which is under the School of Anthropology and Conservation, provides quite a unique experience for um, its students. And because of the anthropological perspective they provide, this program includes a real focus on human factors in conservation efforts, which might be a little different from the more traditionally um, ecologically based conservation programs around the world. So in this interview, Dr. Hummel going to talk about her work in conservation of West African chimpanzees, and specifically her perspectives on the role of sanctuaries in these conservation efforts, and why landscape level investigations are extremely important to inform conservation management strategies to protect these animals. Now, we're going to just let this interview run from start to finish, and I apologize for the little background noise at the beginning, but here's Dr. Hummel telling us about her work.
1: Yeah, as a, as a primatologist, I studied studying uh, chimpanzee culture and chimpanzees in West Africa. And uh, after 20 years of working in country and in range state countries, uh, I really noticed that uh, uh, we need to do much more sort of um, science that's supplied for conservation. So I very much changed my focus to try and achieve uh, mainly two things and really uh, addressing the main threats to chimpanzees in West Africa, um, one of which which is the lack of law enforcement, the pet trade and issues, growing issues with negative interactions between people and chimpanzees and also the big threat of increased development uh, large-scale development activities coming into these countries, uh, whether we're talking about mining or potentially large-scale industrialized agriculture. So at that level, I see myself working, uh, applying my knowledge, uh, my skills in ethology and ecology, uh, and employing interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach also using social sciences to understand people to try and bridge two two levels one is the continuum between conservation and welfare and uh, sort of bridging between these two worlds whereby we need to acknowledge that chimpanzee sanctuaries uh, such as the chimpanzee conservation center in guinea or the takugama chimpanzee sanctuary um, in uh, sierra leone are acting as major supporters of uh, chimpanzee conservation efforts in country, not only uh, taking in individuals uh, of the pet trade and, and human wildlife conflict issues but also being quite active and, and active players in conservation as a permanent feature of the landscape in these countries, so basically is Giving, providing them assistance and expertise, in trying to improve their practice, and also to uh, allow to translate some of this scientifically, for to provide them with more credibility, and to allow them to kind of pursue uh, effective uh, strategies and conservation strategies. But another level, I'm interested more the landscape which integrates people, and trying to better understand the drivers of interactions between people and uh, chimpanzees and what are the sort of characteristics that generate tolerance or intolerance towards chimpanzees in different landscapes and try to better understand those so we can prioritize areas where conservation efforts could be uh, more effective or less effective. Uh, so moving really from a very grassroots conservation level at sanctuary level, at village levels, but also trying ultimately to better understand the landscape level um, with in collaboration with other people who have bring in different expertise such as US expertise, economic expertise, social science expertise, expertise to therefore better uh, inform policy in terms of oil palm, future oil palm development, uh, mitigation of uh, impact mining industry, etc. So really it's sort of a very sort of encompassing approach. Uh, working with other people using interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary approach, um, and really to try and have a maximum impact on the conservation of chimpanzees in a region of Africa which where chimpanzees live outside protected areas and which still has a lot of potential lessons for application elsewhere across Africa as well as we 're seeing increased fragmentation of habitats, increased habitat degradation and deforestation in many areas even in central Africa so this is Sort of the core gist of my motivations and drivers as a scientist, as a conservationist, as someone who cares about people's livelihoods and cares about uh, chimpanzee conservation and wildlife conservation in more generally.
0: So that was Dr. Tatiana Hummel telling us about her work in the conservation of West African chimpanzees. In our next interview we 're going to chat with Miles Woodruff. Miles is a doctoral candidate at Durham University working with Dr. Joanna Setchel, who we have in'll we'll feature in a future podcast within this series. But he's also a principal investigator on the Mandrill Reintroduction Project run by the Jane Goodall Institute. He's going to talk about that project and his uh, research at Durham University, but before getting into that, he's going to tell us his interesting story about how he got involved in primate conservation.
2: I got into primatology in a bit of a roundabout way. I was in sustainable business, and I was... Uh, Into net impact and sustainable enterprise at uh, various green MBA universities in San Francisco Bay Area, and I came into contact with Jane Goodall, and she encouraged me to explore uh, primatology. Well, actually, at that point, I wasn't in sustainable enterprise. I was in a bit of exploitation. I was import. I was importing. plastic I was importing consumer goods and selling them to Walmart and um, it didn't have a real strong conservation message and I was explaining this uh, to Jane Goodall and she explained to me that I should uh, take control of the situation and um, move into primatology (laughs) move into conservation directly So I did. I I set up with my business partner to sell my business and moved to a reintroduction project in the Congo, Help Congo. And I spent a year there with the chimpanzees uh, doing uh, field research. And after that, I shifted into sustainable enterprise. Uh, And I did two years of sustainable master's-level business school. And then the Jane Goodall Institute asked me to come back and help them
0: with the Mandel reintroduction project inspirational story there from miles so thanks for sharing that and you know if you go back to podcast number the primary cast number eight um back in the archives you'll see that we did an interview with jane goodall and towards the end when i asked what was next for her she could say nothing more than well she just keeps going on because she makes a difference and it's so clear that she does um, the way she mentioned in the interview but also miles is another good example of that of how her activities and people having the chance to meet her can be really inspirational and completely life-changing as it seems to have been in this case. So in an unaired segment of the interview, Miles mentioned that this is a four-year program and he is currently in the middle of that. And so using this mandrel reintroduction project as a platform to launch his PhD research, which is focusing on the behavioral ecology of the mandrels to better inform conservation management strategies. Now, this is important because currently not a whole lot is known about mandrel behavioral ecology in the wild. Um, They're currently listed as vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species. So the more information we have about this, the better the situation is going to be for them in the future. So before getting into details about um, Miles's PhD research, he's going to tell us first a little bit more about, specifically about the animals that he's working with.
2: My research is based on wild-born, captive-raised, uh, bushmeat orphans, mandrels, uh, that are, have been confiscated in the Republic of Congo and are currently being housed at the Chipunga Sanctuary, uh, which is a, a JGI, Jane Goodall Institute-run sanctuary in the Republic of Congo. And so we get a number of mandrels right now. I think the total number is about 15 that we have, um, and we've released to date seven, and we're going to continue to, to release the other uh, probably five of them uh, in the near future. Uh, some of them aren't fit for the re- release necessarily, so they might have a long-term stay at the sanctuary. Uh, we don't want to just throw out every animal. We want to make sure that we're releasing ones that have a high high probability of success.
0: So this issue of orphans of the bushmeat trade crops up all over the place, and you know, going back to Jane Jane Goodall's podcast, um, it was an important impetus for the Jane Goodall Institute's establishment of these sanctuaries in Africa, and. Even more recently, Joe Bolitsky in the last podcast was talking about um, this issue as well, uh, in terms of in terms of perhaps changing the way that we think about the management of those animals while uh, before the reintroduction process occurs. But we asked Miles to tell us about what he will be focusing on, focusing his research on um, during this project for his doctoral program. It's reintroduction using mandrels as a case study. I have
2: various components uh, with various partners. So, for example, Disney is helping us with a fecal hormone cortisol metabolite study. Um, and luckily, not luckily, we've uh, just identified the, um, the biomarker we're going to use for that assay, which um, we presented in a poster here. And um, I'm also focusing on the function of GPS radio callers in the wild. Uh, there's evidence that collars function better in certain environments, and those environments aren't where monkeys live. <laughs> so uh, we're testing how well they work in certain environments and how, well, how that might affect your data. And I'm also presenting on that uh, here at the conference.
0: So it looks like the pilots have been laid down for this particular research program. And it's nice to see um, Miles talking about the systematicity with which they wanted to test and make sure that their methods were appropriate, both in terms of the um, assays, the hormonal assays that they're going to use to estimate stress in the animals, and also the um, locational spatial data that they're going to be getting from the GPS units. Indeed, monkeys do not typically live where those things function at their best. So we wish Miles the best of luck with those programs. Um, but we also want to get a little sneak peek at the results that he was presenting at this Congress. So that's what we asked him about next
2: on the, the hormone study. Like, uh, I said, we have the, we have found the assay we're going to use for that. and uh, it is a metabolite that we're going to be using to run all of the hormone study because cortisol and uh, corticosterone didn't, didn't give us the sensitivity we needed for that study. Uh, so it, it will be a metabolite, and we are going to be publishing that soon. And also for the collar study, we found that where the animals are in the forest is go- definitely affects how the collars function and also the animals use of the forest affects how the collars function and knowing how the collars function in your forest will affect um, the amount of noise that you have in your caller data so it could show that a male was not in the area as the same uh, same area as a female if the male is terrestrial and the female is arboreal primarily like this is the case in mandrels the females and the juveniles are often foraging in the trees And the males, large males, are often on the ground. So their GPS data would be very different. So where they are in the forest introduces
0: uh, a lot of noise. So that was Miles Woodruff telling us about his PhD research and the Jane Goodall Institute's Mandrill Reintroduction Project. A little disconcerting at the end there about the dubious results produced by those GPS callers. So just a quick reminder that you are listening to the Primate Cast's coverage of this year's 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held between August 11th and 16th in Hanoi, Vietnam. Now in our third interview in this conservation installment, we're joined by Debbie Cox. So she's spent the last 20 years working as a technical advisor for the Jane Goodall Institute, with a focus mainly on East Africa, but also in Central Africa's Congo Basin. And she's going to tell us first about the Jane Goodall Institute and its mission.
3: The Jane Goodall Institute has been been doing conservation programs since 1986, prior to that the focus of the institute was actually just supporting Gombe Stream um, Research Centre and the long term study of chimpanzees at Gombe Stream in western Tanzania. But in 1986, Jane did a flyover and it was for the first time that she really fully understood the impact of the human development around Gombe Stream and chimpanzees. And when she went to the Understanding Chimpanzee Conference in Chicago, it was she realised that what was happening in Tanzania wasn't in isolation, that it was happening everywhere across Africa and that she needed to make a shift of what her focus was. And so she decided to leave the field, leave that in the hands of others, and become an advocate and fundraise to do conservation for chimpanzees.
0: So again, if you go back to our interview with Jane Goodall um, in podcast number eight, you'll hear that she does talk about this as well, how um, her activities were focused on the chimpanzees at Gombe and, and the research activities there. But then there was a meeting in 1986 in Chicago on understanding chimpanzees where the actual conservation concern and threats to the animals really became apparent to her. And as she mentioned in the interview, she just came out of all of this an activist. And obviously a very good activist um, who's had a very, very big impact uh, around the world Now, Debbie goes on to tell us here about the current strategies of the Jane Goodall Institute and where they plan to take their efforts um, in the coming years.
3: Just recently, the Institute um, has undergone a strategic planning for our chimpanzee conservation programs. And our target or focus is going to be trying to save in the next 30 years at least 85% of the chimpanzee populations. Of course, that's not something the Institute's going to do alone because we're a small organisation. We are hoping to form very strong collaborations with other organisations and leverage support um, to just work collaboratively together for a common cause, which is the, the protection of chimpanzees' habitat and chimpanzees themselves. At the moment, the Institute's focus is in Tanzania, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Republic of Congo. In Tanzania, of course, it's around Gombe Stream National Park and the Agula, uh, Ugala and Masitu area that borders on the Mahali um, ecosystem. In Uganda, of course, we work all over the Western um, Ugandan um, forest zones. Um, we, there, focus on at least 75% of the chimpanzees' populations. But we are putting a lot of effort right now is on those chimpanzee populations that are actually outside the protected area system because they create the corridors and the linkage between two large populations. So each of the populations inside the protected areas on their own are barely genetically viable and so without the connectivity to the other populations um, they would be at risk to extinction in the future. So that's where we put most of our focus. In the Democratic Republic of Congo at the moment our focus has been in eastern um, DRC on the growl gorilla landscape including of course the chimpanzees. Um, we've been the coordinating NGO working with multiple NGO partners and government partners in stabilising the Grau Gorilla landscape and trying to stop the killing of the gorillas and the chimpanzees in that area. It's a very difficult area to work because of the civil unrest, which is still, it's been going for more than 20 years now. And also, just from a geographical point of view, because there's such low infrastructure that many of the forest zones and gorilla populations, the chimp populations it could be a 120 kilometre walk before you even get to them to even start actually doing survey work or protection work and so it, it's a very challenging environment for us all to work in um, the Congo Republic um, is a unique country in that fact that it has um, very intact habitat the chimpanzee population is estimated around 20,000 chimpanzees Um, We have been there for the last 20 years. It's actually one of the countries that we've been in longest after Tanzania. And uh, our main focus had always been actually just captive care of confiscated orphans, um, assisting the wildlife authorities in their law enforcement program. Um, But right from the beginning, we also were involved in habitat protection with the Chimpunga uh, Reserve, Nature Reserve, And more recently, in the last 10 years, we've put a lot more focus on education and public awareness. And we've found some very interesting results, particularly with our public awareness. We've been focusing on roadside billboards, um, making sure that people understand what the laws are in the Congo and the protected status of the apes and trying to create um, a sense of pride for the Congolese in having these apes in their countries, making them realise how special they are in the world to actually even have the two great apes in their country. We uh, also, with that, have done uh, a children's TV program called Super Codo, which has been very successful. We've actually cr- um, defined our success in the fact that we've been pirated and sold on the streets, even though it was a free TV program um, that we were giving out to the TV stations just to air for nothing. And this TV program uses a local boy, um, these a child from our own staff, who... Gains special powers from a forest siren and goes around and saves wildlife and other animals, domestic animals, and also the environment and his school friends help him do that as well, and so it's all done in local language and now a little bit more in French, and it's a very popular series, we're up to episode 14 now, and we even find adults watching it and commenting on that program, which is great fun, and we've seen from our results of our surveys with the people on the streets with the billboards, that people are reading the billboards, and they have a change in attitude and also in practices, so Prior to the billboards going up, when we surveyed the people on the street, we would do 100 people per town and we'd do at least 10 towns. Um, nobody ever mentioned that a consequence of having a chimp or gorilla would be that you would go to jail. After the billboards went in, almost everybody would say, you could go to jail. So we thought that was really good that people unders- uh, understood that. And to go alongside that is... Um, In the last uh, year, we've only had one chimpanzee come into the sanctuary. Um, Our average rate used to be seven per year, and now to only have one. And last year, we only had four chimpanzees come in. But of those four, two of them actually we knew about at least more than a year earlier. But we had been waiting for the, the wildlife authorities to actually do an arrest because that's one of the... Uh, stipulations with ourselves now with the wildlife authorities that for us to receive the chimpanzee they have to actually arrest the person they can't just go and take the animal and then bring it to us and there's no consequence to the person who had the chimp and that seems to be the word is getting out and i think people are much more concerned now of the consequences of their actions and so we're definitely seeing a very big downturn in the trade in chimpanzees in the
0: congo republic so that was Debbie Cox, technical advisor with the Jane Goodall Institute, telling us about their activities. And we do hope uh, with their public awareness campaigns that those trends of reduced numbers of chimpanzees coming into Congolese sanctuaries will continue in the long term. Uh, would be a really nice sign of the success of those activities. And just momentarily, I'd like to go back to the um, other educational programs they have producing children's um, so book books uh, to raise awareness in children and educate children about the ongoing struggles of wildlife in their um, local areas. And it reminded me a few years ago in 2010 when Alison Jolly was given the Lifetime Achievement Award um, by the International Primatological Society. And during her acceptance speech, she actually read from, I believe she read from one of her stories about lemurs Uh, And So that was another big part of her her work, not only just the research, but um, the really sincere and dedicated activities that she put into conservation and raising awareness about the plight of the lemurs in Madagascar and biodiversity in general. So so that was a really nice and touching moment during that 2010 conference, which occurred in Kyoto. Um, And so I think that these types of programs can really do a lot of good around the world, um, starting people really young and, of course, kids... You know, we're, At that age, we're always going to be so fascinated with the natural world. And so just tapping into that can have real power. So we wish Debbie Cox and the Jane Goodall Institute the best of luck uh, in the future. In the fourth interview in this installment of the Primate Cast, we sat down with Noel Rowe. Now, many of you will know that name uh, as the author of that iconic book, The Pictorial Guide to the Living Primates. But also, um, Noel is the founder and director of Primate Conservation Incorporated. So for any field workers out there, particularly those who work on uh, endangered species of primates, uh, will may have come across that organization as in the context of trying to receive funding for their projects. I myself was on a project as a young graduate student from the University of Calgary, working with Pascal Sikat um, on the West African black and white colobus monkeys in Ghana. And so we received some support from that uh, organization as well. Now, he's also managing editor of the All the World's Primates Project, which is kind of picking up where the pictorial guide left off. He's going to start this interview by talking about his work through Primate Conservation Incorporated.
4: My conservation work uh, with Primate Conservation is to give grants to study and protect the least known and most endangered primates in the world in their natural habitat. So what we've done over the last 21 years is to... Give small grants uh, and matching funds to primate field workers and conservationists in 29 countries. We've given over five hundred, given money to over 500 projects. Probably, uh, I think 1.2 million dollars at this point uh, has gone to primate protection and study. We have two granting periods in September and February. Um, if you go to www.primate.org, you can find out much more information about who we've supported or get the uh,
0: application materials. So Primate Conservation Incorporated doing great work for studying conservation of primates, particularly endangered primates around the world. So, so please do check out that website, um, see what you can do and take a shot at a grant. So Noel's going to go on here, telling us about his other activities in primate conservation, um, beginning with the All the World's Primates project.
4: My other uh, job in primates is to finish the All the World's Primates book. We already have a website, All the World's Primates, uh, small case dot O-R-G. Um, And this is a compendium of information based on a database, uh, so it can be queried. It has information on life history, diet, physical measurements, conservation threats, uh, behavior, of course, the taxonomy, uh, and I think a couple of other... uh, categories of information it has video it has photographs it has audio if we can find it uh, so you can hear gibbons sing you can see injuries singing uh, in video um, all these charismatic species um, it's based on the work of over 200 primatologists who have are experts in their field most of them have studied the primates in the wild that they they contributed the information for and they so it is up to date with the taxonomy and the references are somewhere over 10,000 so it's a reference for more serious, anybody could use it and be interested in it, but it's really a reference for student students interested in primates, either undergraduate or graduate. Uh, they will find it the most
0: useful. Indeed, an incredible resource they're building um, from from Nolan, all the world's primates. I had a chance to look at the website, and though it is subscription based, I don't think any of us would feel. Um, too much pain donating to Primate Conservation Incorporated and supporting that cause and it is just a nominal fee so $40 US dollars for a a lifetime membership actually gives you all the access you could need to all the world's primates so do check that out, support the website and the program and happy surfing about primates. Now in the next segment Noel's going to tell us about different versions of all the world's primates that are starting to come out or have started to come out in ebook format.
4: We also are working on We have two e books now. One for the Lorises, well, the Lemurs, Lorises, Potos, and Galagos, um, which is available on Amazon. And it's so that you can take the information uh, with you on your phone or your iPad or whatever device you would like to have it. Uh, It works as any e book does. We also just came out with the "All the World's Apes" ebook, um, which is just has all the apes, but it has all the subspecies and the species, and even one form that's not a subspecies but is a population that was in the literature a lot, and so we cleared up that it's it's a uh, not a not a valid subspecies, but it's an interesting population with that does interesting has interesting behavior uh we will hope to have the all the world's african primates done by the end of 2014 and the all the world's primates book by 2016 will be which will be the new year chinese new year of the monkey so uh you can have a
0: primate book and a monkey in the year of the monkey So really cool stuff there, great reference material, and I'm sure that we're all really looking forward to 2016 uh, when that All the World's Primates complete volume will be available. Now, in the last segment of the interview, I could not let him go without being able to talk to us about that earlier book, The Pictorial Guide to the Living Primates, which was so inspirational probably for so many of us, uh, and in many cases, our first introductions to the great diversity that we see in primates around the world. And, and by the way, that diversity just continues to grow with the, the current number of species that, that some scientists are recognizing over 600 now. Um, and so Noel's going to talk a little bit about that, but also the history of the, how that book got started, where it came from and what he managed to do with it.
4: I was the author in 1996 of the Pictorial Guide to the Living Primates, which started uh, when I was taking graduate courses at the University of Stony Brook. Uh, or, uh, I think it's Stony Brook University now. Um, and they, I took the courses and they kept referring to all these primates. And I said, well, yeah, but what do they look like? And there was nothing but one book that had mostly black and white pictures and had just a few species. And I went to my professor and said, you know, I I came up with a mock-up of a page and said, what do you think of this? And she said, this was Patricia Wright, uh, who said, yes, you should do that. That, That's what the field needs. We really need that book. And so five years later, I, I finally finished the book and got it published And the pictorial guide to the living primates was once referred to me as the monkey Bible, (laughs) and uh, every you know it. it, At the time, it had all the all the primates in the world except for a few aotus night monkeys. Uh, But there were only 234 species back then. And uh, at the IPS, which we're at at the moment, there are now 400. And 97 primates, I think, are recognized. And there's a few more that are about to be described. So it will be over 500 species included in the new book, The the All-The-World's Primates, um, which has complicated the task no end uh, because they keep finding new species, they keep changing, elevating subspecies to species, and we've changed taxonomies three times in the last 10 years trying to finish this book. But it will get done, and, and they may still find a few more species, but if we have 500, that'll be good enough.
0: <laughs> so that was Noel Rowe founder and director of Primate Conservation Incorporated, managing editor of the All the World's Primates Project, and the author of the Pictorial Guide to the Living Primates. And despite the increasing workload that Noel and others are receiving with the increased diversity of primates, uh, the continuing increased diversity of primates, we're really glad to have people as dedicated as him um, that will just get on with it and keep producing great material um, for all of us to enjoy and, and find extremely useful in the future. So the fifth and final interview that we'll feature in this, our conservation-themed installment of our coverage from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, will be with Dr. Agustin Basabose. Now, Dr. Basabose is a primatologist from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where he works at the National Center for Scientific Research, LUIRO, and as well as a number of local and regional universities that he teaches and mentors at, including notably the University of Bukavu, and more recently an upstart university called the University of San Quintanero, where he's expected to assume the role of dean of a faculty related to biological sciences in the near future. So Dr. Basabose joined us on the podcast to talk about his research and conservation efforts in the Biega area of DRC, a field site that, was, that has been run by the now president of Kyoto University, Professor Juichi Yamagiwa, who's been there for over two decades now, um, and they've been collaborating on that project uh, ever since. So in the beginning of the interview, Dr. Basabose is going to start by telling us a little bit about their research activities and findings concerning chimpanzees and gorillas in the area. I'm
5: studying ecology of chimpanzees and gorillas. Great tips. Those two... Subspecies actually, say uh, uh, eastern lowland gorilla and uh, eastern chimpanzees, they coexist in the mountain forest of Kauziyanga, uh, which is uh, a unique site actually, where both subspecies, I mean gorilla beringei graueri and uh, pan troglodytes 14 inhabit sympathetically in mountain forests. This is a unique site in the world where both subspecies uh, share the same habitat. So the habitat is uh, quite mountainous, as I was saying, but uh, the other particularity is that there are less fruits when you compare with other forests, like lowland forests. I'm emphasizing on fruit because it's a major food for both chimpanzees and gorillas. So basically, we want to have a big picture and to understand how these two subspecies can survive together in a habitat which, where food is uh, limited foods so as you can expect they might have competitions over food but this is not the case because each subspecies developed a kind of niche so there is a kind of niche separation between so they can live together so chimpanzees many sorry i'm already on the result so chimpanzee only focus <laughs> eat fruits, and uh, gorillas mainly eat herbs, which is quite different from uh, West Lowland gorilla, where they are frugivory. Somehow they have frugivory diet, but uh, Eastern gorillas, and especially the Eastern Lowland gorilla, is folivorous of course, but sometimes they do eat fruits when fruits are available but what happens when fruits are available and when they shift from folivorous diet to frigivorous diet as chimpanzees what we observe is that there is no competition at all when both subspecies meet on a fruiting trees we observe very interesting phenomena and the gorillas is supposed to be well, <laughs> strong, and uh, chimpanzees supposed to, uh, you know, to, to fear gorillas, but basically it's not the case. Yes, what happens when gorillas approach feeding trees where gorilla, I mean chimpanzees are eating? They observe a kind of distance, but they show up. Their presence, so that chimpanzee can recognize they are around, and uh, what we observe chimpanzee leave earlier in the trees and go, a kind of leaving a room for gorillas. Yes, but gorillas don't do not attack. There is a tolerance when it comes on for food. That's what we observed, It's interesting. And we believe there are so many, many things to to, to, to to observe to justify why those two subspecies are living together in a, a, a mountain forest, as I told you, which is characterized by less uh,
0: fruits. I think it's quite fascinating to think about these two great ape species coming into contact in, in these potentially competitive scenarios where they may be... Uh, challenging each other over specific food resources in, in such a food-limited environment, as Dr. Vasabose explained. And I really love the way he explains this. It just kind of brings this this scenario to life, even though um, in the end, it's often seemingly more common that nothing actually comes out of that, and they just go off their separate ways. But uh, later in the interview, in a part that we won't air here, um, Dr. Vasubose did mention that in the area, there are a number of chimpanzee communities, three to be exact, and, and numerous gorilla groups within their specific um, heavily or intensively studied study site um, there are there's one chimpanzee community and two gorilla groups and with a heavily um, overlapped set of home ranges and so you can imagine that these kind of events would occur not infrequently but of course what we also have to remember is that not only are these great ape species overlapping in their home ranges there are also local humans in the area and so inevitably that's going to cause some conflict so we wanted to get Dr. Basabose's perspective on the human uh, primate, human and non-human primate uh, interface there, the conflicts that arise, and what they're doing on the ground to kind of mitigate some of these.
5: Yes, uh, we are interested in conservation, of course. Yeah, our project, which is uh, led by uh, Professor Juchi Amagiwa in Kyoto University, uh, our project has uh, good... Collaboration with local mm-hmm. uh, communities, especially a local NGO uh, interested in uh, conservation, of course, also in uh, also in um, human livelihood. Mm-hmm. So we support them. We support the the idea, and actually, sometimes we work together. And uh, We provide advices when, it's, when uh, it's needed. Normally, people around Kahuzi-Biega don't eat chimpanzees and gorillas. It's a taboo. I mean, part of the people. Mm-hmm. There is another side where chimpanzees and gorilla uh, are food for them. But in the in the side where we are working, uh, they don't eat actually. But they set snares to catch antelopes and, uh, and sometimes gorillas may, may you know may be um, caught in their snares and uh, uh, yeah so there is a pressure on the wildlife because it's an area where we have a high population density sometimes it can reach a thousand people per square kilometer you can imagine what pressure there is on the wildlife, and the majority of people are poor. They believe all resource should come from the park. So there is a much, much pressure. Even if they don't eat on daily basis, I mean, in uh, the, uh, the gorillas and the chimpanzees, bush meat as food, but there is another pressure on firewood collection, sometimes uh, illegal mining, and as I said poaching with daikas, and uh, since daikas are sharing the same habitat with the and chimpanzees so the great apes are also affected by this poaching behavior yes, so uh, there is a pressure uh, and there is a threat on the gorillas, But also, there is another threat. Is um, as I said, there is a high population density around Kahuzi-Biega National Park, which means uh, population are very very close to the park. There is park boundary. There is no uh, buffer zone. So sometimes gorillas and chimpanzees leave the forest to raid crops in peasants' fields, and those, those, uh, it brings the, the, the conflict between local people and uh, the park. That's effectively the role of uh, the NGO, the local NGO, trying to, to educate people the importance of uh, gorillas and chimpanzees, but as I'm saying, there is a a kind of um, conflict because the crops are <laughs> being, you know, so it brings some conflict. But uh, yes, uh, the Popov, because we are talking about the local NGO which called Popov, is doing a great job trying to to present itself as a bridge between the people and uh, the park Mm -hmm. so uh, and uh, educate as I'm saying and uh, support some small activities which can help people so that you know they they, they increase not only the awareness but they they, they, they get some benefits Mm -hmm. and um, of course, the awareness as well, so that they, they know it's really very important to protect the gorillas and chimpanzees. And, uh, yeah, so awareness, yes, but uh, as you know, people, as I said, they are very poor, they lack everything, and all the resources they have to collect inside the park. So what we normally do as researchers, we support such kind of NGOs which can work to, directly with the people, to provide other alternatives so people somehow they increase their livelihood and uh, reduce the pressure on the, uh, the, the park resources.
0: So there's really no substitute for capacity building in any successful conservation effort. And Dr. Basabose touched on that later um, in, in ways that these local NGOs can help improve the livelihoods of local communities. Um, which then reduced their reliance on, on products from the forest and, and infringing on great ape habitat. But also another important component of that is having good people on the ground and being and having educated people on the ground. And Dr. Basabose himself is a great example of this. So obviously a very dedicated researcher and conservationist in the area. And he's had a long history of interaction with Um, Japanese primatologist and even spent some time at Kyoto University getting his PhD there. So he wanted to leave us here at the end of the interview just with a brief message kind of expressing his thanks and and the importance um, that having had that opportunity to come to Japan and study in Japan had on his future career.
5: Yeah, uh, my work with uh, Gorilla and Chimpanzee led me to go to Japan and uh, I was lucky in 2005 I did, uh, I presented my PhD, I got my PhD from Kyoto University and uh, under the supervision of Professor Yamagiwa, Tutu Yamagiwa, and uh, recently last year I was invited by Professor Tesoro Matsusawa to join the PWS, uh, whereby I am uh, an international collaborator, I'm very happy with that uh, position. And uh, even now, I'm here on invitation uh, by Professor uh, Tetsuro Matsuzawa to join this IPS. Thank you very much.
0: And a big thanks back to Dr. Basabose for joining us on the podcast. Now, towards the end of the interview there, he did mention this PWS program. And I should just clarify, we talk about it in the introductory podcast to this IPS series. um, But I'll just reiterate that that stands for Primatology and Wildlife Science which is a new graduate program, a leading graduate program launched this year by Kyoto University, accepting graduate students into a program that's, of course, designed to produce scientists and field, particularly field field researchers, um, but moreover, to produce individuals who have extra skills in conservation and outreach activities, for example, and so Dr. Basabose has been invited into the extended international network of collaborators that are working together to make this, um, this program happen and to provide different outlets and different networks for students involved in the program to get some more diverse uh, training opportunities or field research opportunities. And so for anyone interested, you can go to the website, you can Google that, um, Kyoto University's Primatology and Wildlife Science, or go through the SciCasp webpage. We have links in our program page. Um, but do check that out. So I'd like to thank all of the guests we had on this podcast, on this conservation-themed podcast of our coverage from the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society in Hanoi, Vietnam, that included Tatiana Hummel, Miles Woodruff, Debbie Cox, Noel Rowe, and Augustine Basabose. So that is going to do it for this episode of the Primate Cast. I hope everyone enjoyed our interviews today, and do stay tuned for our next podcast when we're going to feature a host of very well-known primatologists, including Augustine Fuentes, Cheryl Knott, Elisabetta Vizelberghi, James Hayam, and Joanna Setchel. Until then,
3: you have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash theprimatecast and on Twitter.